My conversation today is with a trailblazer in the world of wellness, literature, and cultural criticism. She's an Australian-Canadian of Bangladeshi ancestry who also happens to be Muslim and queer. Her name is Fariha Roshin, and I am so thrilled that she's going to be on the show today. Fariha is the author of two books. The first is a collection of her stunningly beautiful poetry called How to Cure a Ghost, and the second is her novel called Like a Bird. Her latest book is called Who is Wellness For? And I started my conversation by asking her that very same question. So what a great time for us to speak because your book, Who is Wellness For? is out. And I had the good fortune of reading it before it came out. And I had so many questions and was underlining things frantically and texting you photos of things, asking you questions, because I was so curious about a lot of the things that you wrote. But if I just look at the title, who is wellness for? What does that mean? I think it's a, it's a very broad question to ask of not only myself, but us as a species, because it's something that's so basic. And yet we live in a country where even that is questioned and challenged um, on so many different levels and so many different fronts. And so I wanted to, to start and begin with a very rudimentary question, because I think that's where we need to start with each other, especially with regards to wellness. It's this huge thing It's this huge industry, and yet none of us are really having an open and honest conversation about not only who is it for, but what is it? What is wellness? And the more I asked myself that, I just came to a very simple answer, and that is wellness is for all, and it has to be. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Otherwise, we should call it something different. Exactly. Right. And why did you decide to write this book now? I mean, it's interesting given the times, because I think the book is very much in conversation with the times, especially, I mean, I wrote it during the pandemic. So I was transmuting so much of this darkness, I think, that I was traversing through in my own life. And I don't think I even really expected to go certain places or I don't even know if I knew what I was doing when I signed on to write this book, but the timing is impeccable and I feel really excited for it to go out right now because I think this is exactly when we're sort of at that juncture right now, you know, three years into the pandemic, we're sort of questioning a lot of things that I think pre-pandemic we weren't really concerned about because everything felt, or like to a lot of people, even me, I, I think there was a sense that, you know, life is just life and you, you move on, you get on with it. And then we were halted and everything came to a pause. And now so many of us have actually had to go a little deeper into ourselves. And so, I don't know, I think along with people along with where we are in the world right now, I kind of started somewhere and then I went somewhere else. But I don't, I mean, I wanted to write this book because it felt necessary. But what I've 
what I've actually made is something I think really beyond what I was even anticipating. I know I'm having so many conversations with my community about the commodification of wellness and that it's been so many incredible practices have been co-opted for a price and or have been co-opted and then sold back to people for a high sticker price and yet those practices originated with people who did not create them with the intention of selling them so in your book you talk a lot about how many practices originated with people of color and were then sold to wealthier people can you talk to me a little bit about that and why you find that so damaging yeah um we're just gonna get right into it here yeah (laughs) (laughs) i love it um so it was something that i was observing a lot being a south asian person obviously or maybe not obviously so so much of the wellness um world is invested in particularly south asian indigenous practices so everything from yoga to meditation is is sourced from india it was indians that that um founded them so you know with uh, with meditation, it was Vedic Hindu scholars that were thinking about the mind and going into these very, very daunting places within themselves in order to even comprehend what human life is. That's how that conversation of meditation began. And then that, that sort of shifted and, and moved into um, Buddhism and sort of with the awakening, awakening of Siddhartha, who Gautama Siddhartha, who was Buddha, he uh, he sort of then brought brought it in the Buddhist lineage, and so we've got sort of these two Hinduism and Buddhism, these two sort of lineages that are highly invested in human psychology, um, and also not only that, but like how does the body remain well in a state of decom decomposition, decomposition in in state of like, we are dying, we are here, we are dying, but how can we invest fully in in understanding every element of who we are? And what's so sad to me is that this is, this is, these are civilizations that were thinking about this for thousands of years. And it was just practices that were that were for your own betterment. They were never supposed to be braided together with capitalism. They were never, it just is, it doesn't make any sense. And so you've got yoga, you've got meditation, two of the biggest exports from India. And yet when it comes to these things in the West, absolutely no, um, I mean, I can't say outrightly no folks are, are, are of that heritage, but by and large, so many of these spaces are specifically for white people. And to me, that was really troubling because I grew up in Australia. I didn't have a lot of access to understanding where I was from. It was really, really othered and it was embarrassing. Like I didn't like being Bangladeshi. I didn't know what it meant. 
I didn't know other people like me. And if I did, I didn't like them. Like they didn't feel like of my kin. So I was just so ostracized and isolated and confused. And I mean, it's the age old tale that you hear a lot these days, but like, you know, being bullied and all of those things that do happen. What The saddest part of that is not only not, not just the being bullied part, because I didn't really experience it that much. It was more just how you then self-isolate from your own culture. And you're like, mm. you reject it. And then it becomes a rejection of self. Mm-hmm. And then you're rejecting not only who you come from, your ancestry, everything. And then you're kind of like, you come into your twenties and you're like, who am I? You don't even- And where what- do I go and where do I fit? And exactly. what you're saying is that the- the origins of these incredible practices are not from when they exist in Western culture, they're not inclusive is what you're saying, right? Exactly. Exactly. What does, what would that look like to you if they were inclusive? It would mean more people of color were actually not only in these spaces, but had accessibility to them. And that like, I think, true equality and I'm talking equality within nations, it, India wouldn't be just extracted from like something that really bothers me is that 350 million people live below the poverty line. And this is a, a nation that that supports a billion dollar industry that is the wellness industry. So to me that obviously there's just so many things that are not going wrong or going right. And there's, we, I guess we essentially need to correct as a society and understand that we can't just extract from culture and make money for some people and not others. That That's not right. fair. I mean, inevitably, when practices or when anything, even if you think about like a recipe that is passed down through generations, right? There is going to be iterations as each new perspective is added to the mix, if you will. And I, in a way, the Western adaptation of what has been taken from India, as you say, is it it almost couldn't be successful if it hadn't been iterated on because Mm -hmm. the Western perspective is different. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and I think there's, there's good things about people Mm -hmm. being able to be exposed to practices that are immensely beneficial but what you're saying is on the other side of that, there's, there's no way of, there's, there's isn't a payback. There isn't an honoring of the origins mm-hmm. whereas that and that is ultimately the issue. Because mm-hmm. it's not, it's great that people are taking care of themselves. Everybody, if wellness is for all, then, then these practices absolutely should be accessible to all, but they're not. And that is the issue. I want to go back a little bit um, and just talk about the kind of commodification some more. When you say commodification, what are you talking about specifically? Specifically, it's, you know, taking, taking something and then decontextualizing it and then making it sort of chic or something that it's, that, that it's not necessarily in order to fit a different audience's taste. And again, like you said, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that there is beauty in commodification, but 
I, th I also think that the word commodification in essence does mean that like one party is being taken from or like mm -hmm. something's being, you know, like commodified in yeah. order to be distilled into something else. And for, for like financial benefit. Exactly. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have seen a massive uptick and especially it started well before the pandemic, but certainly during the pandemic, you know, I have seen a massive uptick of, you know, self-help mm -hmm. people, you know, Instagram people who mm -hmm. have giant following all of a sudden and they're, pre they're, you know, talking about all types of, you know, wellness from mental health to physical health, spiritual health, physical health, all of it, all of it, all types of wellness. And a lot of them are not researched or accredited and, and it's really interesting, actually, because there's a couple of them who I really like. There's a couple who I just think you are full of shit, but they're doing really well. And then there's a couple who I really like. And um, and I've had dialogue with a couple of them. And I'm like, so, you know, what are your rates? Because um, you work with people privately and their rates, hands down, have been at least double what trained psychologists that I've worked wow. with are charging. And I was thinking, oh, I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> like this is like, this is deep, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, all right, good for you. If you're get if people are paying you this, but wow, I was, I've been shocked every mm -hmm. time. Exactly. I mean, and I really have. And, and me, I mean, and that's, that's the worrying thing. Like there's people that are taking this information decontextualizing it, not really fully aware what they're saying, but feel so authoritative enough to make hundreds, thousands of dollars worth of money that they, that they, they don't necessarily even deserve. And I know deserve is like a complicated thing too, but the Instagram com commodification or the TikTok commodification is deeply worrying to me because I think What's also in that word is that it's like just going to the masses. And when he goes to the masses, again, it's the most distilled version. So what are you really doing with that information? I feel this way about astrology a lot. It's like, it's great that we all know our sun, moons, and da, da, da. but then like, what does all of that mean? And when you lose meaning, it's not important anymore. And what is, what is the, what is the, what is the impact then when the meaning is lost? To me, I'm sentimental. And I feel like as a culture, we're so disconnected because meaning is lost. We don't really have that kind of connectivity that we have once had. And context, like you said, context is also lost. I mean, where I find it challenging personally is when I encounter people who have an Instagram education about a wellness subject and not to say I'm an expert on any level other than I have been on my own healing journey for the majority of my life since I'm a teenager at this point. So I can speak somewhat, you know, from personal experience on quite mm -hmm. a few things. I'm not an expert by, by any stretch of the imagination, but I encounter people who say things or who are, who are, who have adopted a certain perspective or approach that when I dig into it, it's like, oh no, there's somebody I follow on Instagram that talks about boundaries or talks about whatever the thing is. And more often than not, it, it is very shallow. Exactly. You're listening to VS Voices. Please stick around and we will have more for you right after this break.
you know that people are going to be upset that you wrote this book, right? Yes, I'm absolutely aware. And I know that, and I, I mean, in what you're saying, you know, like all of this misinformation, it's leading us more and more into this confusion and then therefore a disassociation with each other and ourselves. And I know that that, I, I talk about that in the book. To become aware, to become self-aware is one of the most honest things that you can do. And that's all I'm asking for, honesty. And, and yet I know it's still going to frustrate people. And to me, it's, it's, it's kind of exhilarating because this kind of conversation actually hasn't happened at this level before. And so I'm happy to be the person that's like, yeah, we need to start here. This is where we need to start. We need to be looking each other in the eye and being like, hey, this is uncomfortable. I think that, you know, I say this in the book as well, discomfort is really valuable as a feeling, you know, especially as you evolve, you know, you've, you know, you've, you have been committed to the healing path since you were a teenager. And so, you know, how much of it is actually being uncomfortable with yourself and looking at yourself and being like, I'm doing this and I shouldn't be doing this. How do I rectify this? And being able to tolerate uncomfortable feelings within ourselves. If we don't learn how to do that and we're not taught how to do that, then we spend our lives running away from anything and everything exactly. and everyone that evokes that feeling in us. And in my experience, much of life is feeling, if you're living honestly, is about feeling those uncomfortable feelings. Yeah. And yet we don't teach people resilience around those feelings. And I'm going to say it is hard to do. It is not like, oh, yep, let me do this one thing and let me flip that switch and I'll be able to do it. I still struggle with it on a daily basis. And yet it is one of the most crucial things we can learn. And you and I have talked about this. Having difficult conversations is so imperative because life is filled with them. Yeah. And if we can't have them, then we cannot progress. And you're book who is wellness for is an invitation to have multiple uncomfortable conversations both with other people and ultimately ourselves yeah and that's where the work starts i think it has to start with yourself it has to start by beginning to actually witness yourself in a more truthful way and and seeing those patterns and seeing how you you know potentially replicate violence. I mean, there's so many things for me. I'm a, an abuse survivor. I really had to look at myself clearly and, and see the own patterning in myself that was like allowing me to get back into the same situation again and again and again, um, and have sort of toxic relationships with people. It takes a level of, um, curiosity, I think, to want to go to those places in yourself, which is why I bring in that playfulness in the book. And in myself, I think it's really important to talk about playfulness and like, yes, this work is immensely hard and absolutely it's exhausting and, and all of those things. And yet I'm definitely at one level of my own healing right now today where I feel excited and I feel like there's so many places that I can go within myself. And 
these times are daunting, but they're revolutionary times. And I keep reminding myself that, you know, that crucible that's needed to shift, to mm-hmm. really, really shift and, and go to the direction, go towards the utopia that we're all fighting for. What is your hope that this book will do? I mean, I am so invested in the earth and I think ecologically we are at very troubling times. And if this book could encourage Americans by and large, the West to think a lot more about their, about the cost of living and the cost of energy, the cost of, um, you saw that with um, the Amazon union labors recently. Um, and, you know, just, yeah, like we have to start thinking where, where do things come from and, and who puts the labor into the thing that you want? Us just becoming more connected also means that we see that, that sort of day-to-day effort that goes into existing. And, you know, like the person that's making your coffee maybe doesn't want to be making your coffee. Like, how do you start engaging in, in, in a way that's not just like, I deserve nice things. I think self-care was good for a while because we started to think a lot more about, oh, it's important to care for yourself. But now it's it's embroiled in capitalism and it's like, buy this, buy that. I want people this to will fix you. This will <laughs> fix you. This, un- yeah. you know, this myth that something will fix you. And I think it's not about wanting to be fixed. And that's the cool thing about healing. It's like really, really trusting and, and believing that, you know, the path is worthwhile committing to that path. It might take you your whole life. It probably will, but it's so worthy of your attention. And I feel the same way about, you know, coming back to the earth and finding practices, the on that honor the earth composting something so basic. If more people, started to think that way, I think that we could actually do something extremely moving for this world and protect it. And that's what I'm fighting for. We'll take a break and then we'll be right back. This is the VS Voices podcast. I want to talk to you a little bit about your faith because you speak so eloquently about being queer and your faith and many people find it surprising when you would say that Islam isn't opposed to LGBTQ inclusivity so can you talk a little bit about why people should not be surprised to hear that yeah um I mean this has a lot to do with colonization which is a funny place to start but In my own Muslim education and kind of coming back to the origins meant that I had to look at um, what Islamic civilization was like before colonization came in. And it was night and day. Um, You know, in India, the British government brought in Section 377, which was a uh, anti-homosexuality law. Um, And that shifted the civilization, obviously, and it all of a sudden, you know, things that were quite cultural and, 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 and a part of society, like homosexuality was now no longer um, accepted. But you're saying prior to that, homosexuality was a part of Muslim culture. Yeah, 
a lot of a lot of like it was very openly a part of the culture and it was very much um like the emperors you know people in power they had male lovers they were they were very it was like it was sort of because islamic society looked to the greeks that's where they got a lot of their inspiration okay. from and and they were the reason why we read a lot of greek literature now reason we, why we can read plato and aristotle is because it was translated from Greek into Arabic and then into English. So there's this like really cool lineage in Islam where for 800 years um, before Isabella and Fernando came into Spain, uh, Muslims were, were, you know, inventing all kinds of things. And they were looking at, they were sort of doing what Indians were doing. Um, and they looked at Indian culture a lot, at Vedic scholars a lot to sort of understand what is humanity what is life that's the kind of origin um that makes sense to me like the more i started to like put together my own cultural history and and my own cultural origins and my own religious origins and began to sort of go back to the history books and look further and deeper and not just believe what media was telling me even about islam because i grew up in a post 9-11 world I had to, I, so much Islamophobia just became a part of my own existence, you know, like uh, Muslims silenced themselves for 20 years because they were so deeply ashamed of what happened. We took on that burden and that disassociated us from ourselves and our histories. And so, you know, there's been so much that's been done to sort of silence us and to quash where we come from. And that is a colonial tactic. It is what they wanted. And so I write this a lot in the book. So much of my, I, I think, personhood is understanding who I am. I'm not a product of the West. I'm a product of myself. And I'm a product of my culture. And I'm a product of my faith. And I'm a product of my spirituality. Those are the things that have grounded me. And I want people to understand that. I want, to, I want people to know how much God is a part of my work and how that coming back to that, coming back to what is mine has been the most liberating thing I could have done for myself because I'm not doing it for anybody else. I don't even need to be understood by anybody else, but oh I need gosh, to understand myself. I just have to understand myself. That's yeah. all I want. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about how religion helped you heal from your abortion? Ooh. Yeah. I, so I, I found out when I was 18 that I was pregnant, uh, January, just a couple of weeks before my birthday, my 19th birthday, and I was shocked because I had, I really believed for a time that I would, you know, do the right thing and, and get married and, and have a child, but that didn't, that's not what happened to me. I, I fell in love and I wanted to have sex. And so I did. Um, and after I got the abortion, truthfully, I felt so abandoned by God. I didn't understand why I was been, being given this lesson. I didn't understand why I was being punished. I felt very punished. Um, and it has been such a journey, but 
I coming back to God and understanding that the God that I am connected to and the God of my faith, the God that I believe in is the God that is merciful and kind and compassionate. And, you know, we, we forget that we forget that we're so fearing of God. We live in a society that wants you to fear God, that thinks, you know, everything that you do has to be tallied in order for you to be afraid of your life so you can remain good. Why are we here then? <laughs> Why are we here in this very chaotic world with so many different things around us? Not to be, I, I think binary and dogma is so dangerous and I try and really stay away from those things. To me, God is fluidity and God is in my own understanding expansion. And what I like always loved about Islam is that the first word of the Quran is read. And, you know, this is a, a civilization that was removing cataracts from eyeballs in like the 14th century and reading Plato and Aristotle and translating, you know, they had books that had 20,000 books um, in, in one library. Like it was such a ahead of the times, so ahead of the time, mm -hmm. like beyond, 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 you know, and like the courts had, you know, astrologers and, and it was just so extraordinary from what I know and what I'm reading. And the more and more I, I see it, I, I understand myself through that prism, you know, because I'm like, that's who I am. I thought I was an anomaly, but I'm not, I'm just tapping into my ancestry. Isn't it great when you realize that you're not that special? Oh, it's so liberating. Yeah. yeah, it really is. It's like, oh no, I'm just like, I, there's so many of us and I'm one of them. Yeah. It's so it powerful. Is, it really is. It really is. You can just lose that eternal uniqueness and yeah, yeah I find it very freeing. Yeah. I want to ask you about voices that inspire you because you're not the first critic of yoga and wellness in the US and in the West, but you're one of the voices that is breaking through. And I want to know who the voices are that inspire you and the work that you're doing. I mean, the first person that comes to mind is James Baldwin. I think of him and, you know, a queer man a queer black man in America when that it wasn't safe to be either speaking so eloquently about everything from race to to love and 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 that that kind of like ability to sort of talk about so many different things and the complexities and the layers of what it means to be human that's what I'm constantly seeking um, in myself and in my own writing. So Baldwin is is such an important person for me. Etel Adnan, who just recently passed, was an extraordinary writer and painter um, of Syrian Lebanese origin. And, you know, she was openly queer. Her partner is also Syrian. Like it, it again, like it's it's sort of finding, you know, these elders that you can see yourself in all of a sudden, you know, your own path becomes clearer. Um, and uh, June Jordan, Tony, Tony Morrison, Audre Lorde, I mean, Audre Lorde's work on self-care, bell hooks and Audre Lorde were so, so important to me when I was first investigating self-care because they were 
extraordinary thinkers of their time, but they were thinking about the radicality of what it means to, to love yourself in a world that can't love you or refuses to love you or, or openly doesn't want to show you love. You know, I think, especially given what's happening right now in the world in general, it's just, it's painful because there are so many people that are against us. There's so many people that don't want you, you or, or I to thrive because of our gender, because of whatever, and mainly because of our gender. And to me, it is extraordinary, not only to fight, but to find tenderness within that. You know, like to me, vulnerability, and I think it is very much a product of being and recognizing that I'm a I'm a child sexual abuse survivor, which saying that is again, like really relieving because it just means that I lay bare everything that you need to know about me. Every projection that one has of me then is jolted by that, you know? And to me, that's exciting because I'm not, I, we all are so complex. We shouldn't put each other in little tiny holes. And, and I, I turned to writing and I turned to writers that were constantly pushing the boundaries and being like, no, there's so much more here. And to find vulnerability and tenderness and love and beauty, John O'Donohue, who's a Celtic priest and poet, wrote this a lot. And I think about it so much about finding beauty in dark times in your mind so you can return to that beautiful thing, whatever it is, whether it's a sunset or the sea, the sound of the ocean, whatever it is, finding those things, going to that and being able to just be present with yourself. We all need a home inside of us that we can go to, to nurture ourselves, replenish, rest, yeah, and then go back out into the world. Yeah, we need that. Thank you so much for your time. This Thank has been you. such a treat. Thank you. And I'm so excited to see what your book, Who is Wellness For?, does in the world I know it's going to have an incredible impact thank you that means so much to me coming from you this whole conversation thank you for having me and thank you for seeing me thank you for letting yourself be seen thanks for listening to vs voices my thanks to today's guest Fari Hiroshin if you love our show please comment like and subscribe to wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and as always, please follow me, Amanda Decadene, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you for listening. VS Voices is part of Victoria's Secret's ongoing commitment to become one of the world's leading advocates for women. To deliver on that promise together, we have created the Voices platform to do just that. Amplify the voices, represent the views, and learn from the unique perspectives of women from every background. Sharing stories bring us closer together and it's how we move forward. Open up dialogue and raise the game.